Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby, also another excellent returning guest. We'll get to that in a second. First, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let Matt give us a minute to tell I was about to say, us. are you going to skip over me again? No, I'm okay. going to let you tell us how you're doing. Okay. I would like you to keep it brief because <sighs> wow, it's not that we don't care, but like... I feel like it's that you don't care. I care a bit. I don't think so. Uh, anyway, I am doing fantastic, Lyndon. We are here to, to talk about probably the second or possibly first best dungeon in all of Skyward Sword. I wonder if we're going to talk about which it is. Uh, that's. I think we're going to spend a majority <laughs> of the episode debating that exact point, and I am very excited to get into it. This was a super fun section of game to play. I'm so glad we finally finished out all of our collectible items. We got the bow and arrow. We did all the things this week. And it was so much fun, and I'm very excited to talk about it with our awesome returning guest, who you can now introduce because I'm done talking. Max Nichols of Bungie, of course, professional game designer, person with an informed opinion, uh, who we love having on the show. Unlike us, who does not have an informed opinion, just a very loud one. Uh, A valid valid opinion, I think, but certainly not an informed one. (laughs) Agreed. There's there's a lot of overlap there, but not necessarily complete, you know, like, so, yeah. You guys aren't giving yourself quite enough credit. At this point, you're experts. How many hours have you spent thinking about the Zelda games and their design and stuff? Many many hours. Too many hours. So Definitely a lot of hours. I mean, Ooh, wow! Several, at least. Several, several. <laughs> at yeah, least, <laughs> at least two, at least, at least two. <laughs> yes, more than one, definitely. <laughs> well, oh thank you, man. That's an ego boost to yeah, start the start no the recording off on. No wow. doubt about it, Max. How are you doing, man? We are so happy to have you back on. Yeah, I'm doing great. I'm I'm excited. I I went too long without without my Sacred Realms podcast time, so I'm excited to be back. Oh. That's just like touches my heart. Oh, that was so wonderful. Well, in fairness, I think that when we invited you to be on, I mean, we knew we were going to have you on at least once this season for Skyward Sword. Um, but after your uh, your immense Twitter reactions thread about this game, <laughs> it, it became clear that we couldn't have you on just any old episode we we had to we had to save your guest appearance for one where there was really something fun to dig into and uh i think it was very clear which dungeon that was going to be as soon as you as soon as you got to it so at least it was to us we were like oh yeah we we thought that it was going to be ancient cistern and then your your twitter thread led us to believe otherwise which again i thought it was something we're going to talk about later and that that dungeon uh well i i picked a different one to be more excited about this time around (laughs) Well, I mean, that's totally something new to enjoy. It was through us for like a little bit of a loop. But all that to say, Lyndon and I had such a fun time talking about Ancient Cistern last week that we're not even mad about it at all. No, we're not. And uh, we, we've all we, we've had some crosstalk going on here, so I'm not actually going to be able to edit this out. But I do apologize for the sounds that my dog was making in the background while we were saying all of that. Um, he's cute. And so we let him continue doing it. But uh not good for podcast audio, that's for sure. We're, Max, we're, Matt and I, we've, we've been doing this thing lately where it's it no longer feels like death outside in Texas. Um, 
so we've been just like recording <laughs> on the back patio because we found out that the audio quality is actually pretty good. And so we're like, let's just keep let's just keep doing this. So huh. anywho. Gatsby occasionally makes a guest appearance. Yeah, whatever works. Yeah, so Gatsby the puppet occasionally makes a guest appearance, but <laughs> you know what? It's okay. We we deal with it. Um, yeah, no. So uh, how have things been going for you, Max? I know, you know, you guys at Bungie are obviously hard at work on on lots of stuff um, within the world of Destiny 2. But you personally, how have you been doing since we spoke last? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing good. Uh, I mean, I played Skyward Sword, so anytime I get to play a Zelda game, that's a treat. Um, been uh, hard at work on Witch Queen. Um at work and in general kind of kind of just taking this we're still pretty isolated of course up here um so taking things day at a time are you in but, uh, are you in office any days of the week or are you permanent remote at this point uh i've been working from home and continue to since covid started cool yep uh, we briefly had a like office reopening date set and then uh delta variant hit so now we're we are still working from home <laughs> delta delta variant just be that way ruining everyone's plans well that's for sure i work uh yep. i work in logistics and supply chain and let me tell you there has never been oh boy yeah there's never been a harder pe- time period i think in history for logistics and supply chain than uh covid in general and it looked like it was going to get better and then it just didn't and now here we are again yeah, I feel like I feel like ocean shipping on sailing <laughs> vessels might have been more difficult. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, modern day, modern somewhere, day, modern some, day. Some, <laughs> some, somewhere between the uh, East India Trading Company and now, this, this is, is the yeah. art. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, I mean, once, once you get once you get past like the Davy Jones and the Krakens of of ancient. Uh, Ancient sea shipping. That's true. At least we don't have krakens, which anymore. all totally happened. Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Here there be dragons. No, that was totally real. everything. Yeah, no, they were they eradicated in the Great Kraken Wars. <laughs> right. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. Pirates that's, of the Caribbean is a historical documentary. Everyone yeah, that's just history, that. man. Like I, I don't make the rules. god so yeah it's been uh delta variant has sucked for sure uh covid in general sucks and honestly i think covid is a at least a decent part of the reason Lyndon and i were like we need to do something fun with our lives to get us out of our daily trudge routine and it's been pretty great actually it's been a very good covid distraction for yeah. us nine, nine to eleven months later here we are <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. But it has been a ride. It's been a very fun ride. Yeah. Um, Max, we are glad to hear that you were doing well. Obviously, we are going to get into a very fun section of this game uh, on this episode. Can't wait to talk to you about it really quickly. Um, oh, Matt, do you have something you want to say? No, I want to do housekeeping again. Oh, you could do housekeeping again. Because you're doing the plot recap this week. So. Yeah, but I'm not done with the preamble. Oh, okay. Well, we hurry, do, first do we preamble. have preamble, then we have housekeeping, <laughs> and then we just do the preamble. There's a format, dude. I'm following the format. It's right here on my screen. Well, the format is like jazz, you know, you just kind of feel your (laughs) way through it. It's freeform format? Okay, whatever. Continue Uh, with the preamble, please. Okay, okay. Um, I don't even remember where I was going with that anymore. Oh, yeah. No, seriously, we're very excited to talk about this section of the game specifically with you this week, Max. Before we get into the housekeeping, I know whenever we have a new guest on, we always try to get their perspective and history with Zelda. You are not a new guest, but... uh, 
I think I, I would like to hear your general impressions on Skyward Sword um, without getting too specifically into the section of game we're playing this week. If you could just give me like a tone check, where did you land with Skyward Sword HD having played it very recently? And I, I am I wrong in saying that you were negatively biased against it when you started? You are absolutely correct. Um, I was, I've been a Zelda fan my whole life since Link's Awakening back in like 96 or something, uh, which is when I played it, not when it came out. Um, and uh, I, Zelda game has meant like, meant the yeah. world to me. And then there was a period of like 10 years between like Majora's Mask and maybe, maybe Wind Waker and uh, Breath of the Wild where it, I felt like every Zelda game that came out was more disappointing than the last to me. They're all missing some spark that I cared about. Um, in hindsight, I, I realized that what I was missing was um, a sense of the games being about exploring a world. Um, the way I want, the way I loved Zelda was about exploring like overworlds and the sense of discovery when you found things. And I left Skyward Sword originally back in 2011 um very disappointed like disillusioned with the zelda series i almost didn't buy the next game which was link between worlds i think it was link between worlds oh that that would have that would have been a bad yeah, that would have been bad <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> um so i had this very negative memory of skyward sword uh and in hindsight playing this well playing this remake uh i've had a much much more favorable um outlook on it uh, I enjoyed it more than I did the first time around. I'm more forgiving of it, and I, I kind of understand it better. I understand like where the developers were coming from. And I understand how it's how what I perceived to be its flaws maybe weren't flaws, but they were just not targeting me. Um, so I have a much more nuanced and positive view of it than I did a decade ago. Would you say that that comes from having... I don't know how involved in the game industry you were in 2011. It, it, I'm thinking probably not as much, obviously, as you are now. Would you say your your change in perspective, specifically from saying like maybe this doesn't resonate with me, but I see what they were going for? Would you say that that mostly comes from a place of having worked in the game industry and having to work through some of those challenges yourself? Yes, uh, it definitely is. Um, I. Uh Back in 20, 2011, when the game first came out, I was just starting my career. I had just just graduated in 2010, and I was like a year into it. So I, I think I was still in QA, um, like less than a year into my QA first job in QA at Turbine. And uh, I just didn't have very much perspective yet. Mm -hmm. um, Turbine. And I still had a bit of a mindset of like entitled fan boy <laughs> yeah. that I definitely used to that have. Right. The Destiny like, community should has. be about me. Uh, I will, <laughs> we have a lovely community. <laughs> uh, there may be isolated voices here and there that are angry about things. And that is, that is exciting. <laughs> as a part of the, as a part of the destiny community, I feel like I had to throw that in there for a little bit. <laughs> well, criti criticism, criticism is, uh, you know, endemic to any creative pursuit. So there you go. Uh, Indeed. Yeah. Tur hey, remind me real quick, turbine. What would I, what releases of theirs would I know? I'm blanking. So their their biggest claim to fame is Asheron's Call, which was an, uh, an MMO that came out around the same time as EverQuest. Okay. Um, and then in the years since, you might know them for uh, Lord of the Rings Online. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Dungeon, Dungeons and Dragons Online. Okay, cool. Cool. So definitely an MMO crew. 
Yeah, these days they make uh, mobile games and their MMO properties have split off to another developer that is literally in the same building as them and mostly comprised of ex-Turbine people called Standing Stone Games. Um, fun anecdote. Interesting. <laughs> Very interesting. The ins and outs of the, of, the, of the organization of the game industry is just like fascinating, like ownership and relationships and all that. It's, it's incredible. For sure. But, uh, anywho, so, okay, cool. Um, Definitely, I think Matt and I, we were aware that you were approaching Skyward Sword and approaching this episode from a slightly more favorable place just based on your Twitter thread. Um, I think there towards the end, <laughs> there was one episode where Matt and I were talking and he was like, man, I just don't think Max likes this game very much. And I was like, I think you have a little, <laughs> I think you have a little bit of recency bias because like, I think towards the end of the game, Max really like hit a wall of like, this game is kind of running out of a bit of steam and there are early signs of that. Like the things that happen in the end game of Skyward Sword that are not so great. Like there are early signs of that philosophy of game design and specifically backtracking um, that have already started to happen where we are at in the show. So. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. That, that was, uh, the latter third, maybe fourth even of the game is definitely like by far the worst part of it, I feel. Um, except for maybe this dungeon. I forget if this falls in that last third or not. We're right on the um, we're right on the edge. I mean right on the transition point. <laughs> yeah. Cause we've got this dungeon and then the fire sanctuary after it. And my recollection is that uh, honestly, my opinion is that none of the dungeons in this game are bad. Um but then once you get past the fire sanctuary, then you get into like the whole got to find the tad tones and the flooded Faron woods and then you lose your items yeah. in the volcano and like. I mean, we literally titled the tad tone section of this podcast the kill me now section. So I think we're, we're on board <laughs> with you on the there are definitely some things in this game that really <laughs> the game could have done without. So I think we're on board with that. Yeah, 100 yeah. percent. And. And in hindsight, like that originally when I played this game, that section kind of overwrote happy feelings I'd had from earlier <laughs> in the game, right? Like that was what I remembered was the bad parts at the end. <laughs> For sure. Understandable um, because it's at the end of the game, right? Like you always want the end of the game to be the part that sticks with you the most in the most positive way. Yeah. Um, and and that just kind of is not what happened. Yeah. On the, uh, on the season three release schedule, that episode is titled... Episode nine, Song of the Hero slash backtracking slash kill me now. So clear, <laughs> clearly we're really looking forward to that because the thing is, it's enough content to where we can't roll it into the episode before it or after it. But also like having to devote an entire episode to that sounds miserable. So there's a decent chance that mm. there's a decent chance that Matt and I might like, I don't know, get absolutely tanked before that episode and just like it'll be it'll be like sacred realms after dark and we'll just call it a wash i don't know but maybe not who knows who does but we'll see uh, anyway there's one final thought about i have about skyward sword that i'll share right this second which is that i think it has possibly the best average dungeon design in the series um like across the this game the dungeons are are pretty excellent the bar is high the worst dungeon isn't that bad uh, you know, it's it's just good across the board. Which dungeon do you think is the worst? Uh, I said that and I was like, crap, they're going to ask me which one I think is the worst, <laughs> aren't they? I don't know. I, I don't think I love the Fire Sanctuary. That might be my least favorite. 
the fire sanctuary we haven't gotten to it yet but it's that final one in the volcano and there's a lot of like at least in the wii version there was a lot of hand holding kind of stuff and that, that's the one where you get the digging mitts and you go under the, underground and you're in kind of like little tunnel top down sections yeah. it's anyway yep okay yeah actually no my least favorite is the final dungeon the sky keep yeah also no, also known as the uh the best the best hit yeah or sorry the best of uh, greatest hits of Skyward Sword Dungeon. Um, but, you know, the th- the thing about that is, and we're going to move on after this, but I was thinking about that. I saw that you didn't enjoy it. Uh, and I understand why. I think that in general, final dungeons in Zelda games fall into that trap a lot, though. Like, I'm thinking like yeah. Ganon's Castle or, you know, if there even is a final dungeon, like, Link's Awakening doesn't have one. A lot of games just straight don't have one. You go straight to the final boss fight. But a lot of the Zelda games have final dungeons that are really just an amalgamation of all previous dungeons. Yeah, Wind Waker has all the bosses you have to fight again. Ocarina of Time has the elemental-themed side rooms. Yeah, uh, yeah. Etc. Twilight Princess has a pretty good final dungeon. Yeah, and uh, Link to the Past has a pretty great one as well. Ganon's Castle and Link to the Past is hard, if nothing else. So, anywho. Uh, cool. Well, glad we could get a get a quick tone check with you on Skyward Sword. Um, personally, I'm happy that you came away with a more positive impression than not. From the HD yeah, remaster. Too. I was going to say, they kind of fundamentally fixed... Um, one of the big problems that the game, the original had, which was just a very intrusive, disruptive in your face hint system. Um, so that by, by making, just taking that back a few steps, making it more optional and more opt in, they, uh, they honestly fixed one of my two biggest problems with the game. Yeah. Yep. Definitely. I think Matt and I are both in complete agreement with that. I think we feel like that's probably the biggest net positive from the HD uh, remaster aside from just the the fact that the graphics look really great and but. it's a beautiful game it was even a beautiful game on the wii and and oh. like it, it's beautiful even more so now and like i just love that well the art style absolutely yeah the art style was beautiful and now they're now they have like the resolution to really to showcase it, it yeah. so yeah all right matt you you requested it your time has come i did housekeeping take it away If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks that we know of. Every week, we play a new section of Zelda game, then we sit down here to talk and drop our hot takes, sometimes with a fun guest like Max. If that sounds fun to you, please head on over to Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Hit that subscribe button and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, head on over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod to get access to bonus episodes, write in listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and so much more. And without further ado, we're going to get into what we played. I do just want to, just a quick addendum on what Matt said. Uh, expect 
the poll voting on the next top-down game that we play to drop with the next episode of this podcast. So uh, that should be the Fire Sanctuary episode. The poll will be up then. If you're a Patreon subscriber, start thinking about what you want us to play after this. And if you are not a Patreon subscriber and you're even slightly interested in what we play after this, well, there's a really easy way to fix that problem. So Absolutely. All tiers of our Patreon get to vote on what we play. So uh, $5 a month is, I think, the lowest one we've got. Three. Three dollars a month. Three bucks. And uh, you get to vote on the game we play next. Let your voice be heard. Yes. Also, for all of you who do sub to the $15 tier a month on Patreon, we're finally caught up on trading cards. Uh, They're going out this week. They look great. So Absolutely. Seeing those in person is always fun. Oh, for sure. Yep. You did a great job, Lyndon. Thank you. I like to think that if nothing else, I art okay. (laughs) I would say that that is definitely accurate. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, with that, a little bit of a do. Yeah. (laughs) It was a a small ado. It was a small ado. Much ado about nothing? Yep. Let's get into the Sacred Realms Rundown, which is, of course, a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. Today, we're covering Skyward Sword Chapter 7, which deals with the Laneru Sand Sea and the Laneru Sand Ship Dungeon. Part 1 is the plot recap, which will tonight be read by me, because Matt was holding a baby, and I was typing a plot recap. So, I think I got the better end of that deal. I think you did, too, honestly. All right. With our sword having been purified by the sacred flame, it is time to return to the Isle of Songs and learn where our journey will take us next. A well-placed skyward strike activates the goddess crest in the center of the Chamber of Songs once again, and a memory is once again wakened inside of Fee. She informs us that the next sacred flame can be found in the ancient deserts of Lineru and teaches us a new melody for the goddess harp. Nehru's wisdom, which will grant us access to another Silent Realm trial and another gift from the goddess. After taking a moment to upgrade our gear and outfit ourselves for a journey to the surface, we mount our crimson loftwing once again and depart towards the amber beam of light in the sky, which leads to the desert below. Once we touch down, it's time to fire up the old dousing mechanic once again and follow its directions to find the location of the next Silent Realm challenge. This turns out to be at the base of the steps leading to the Laneru mining facility, and a quick rendition of Nehru's wisdom combined with a sure strike from our sword transport us once again into the surreal, silent realm. This challenge is much like the one we faced in the Faron Woods, although possibly a bit more difficult. Regardless, after a good deal of sneaking around and collecting more tears and dusk relics, we emerge from this challenge victorious and are granted a new gift from the goddess, the extendable claw shots, which allow us to reach previously inaccessible areas. This gift surely will allow us to reach previously unexplored areas of the desert, and a little exploration reveals a set of claw shot targets which lead to the top of a great sand river, which we had previously seen but were unable to explore. The head of the river of sand conceals the entrance to a cave, and beyond that, a vast sea of sand. Littered around us are the ruins of ports and harbors, surely the remnants of a time when this desert was a vast ocean. At the end of a long pier lies a ruined boat containing a solitary timeshift stone. We do what comes most naturally to us, and we hit it with our sword, which transforms the area around us into a watery paradise that was once the Laneru Sea. 
Aboard the restored vessel is a robotic character of the same race as our friend Scrapper, who informs us that he is the skipper of a great ship which was tasked with protecting the sacred flame of Nehru. A great storm and some robotic pirates separated the skipper from his vessel, and once we explain our need to find the sacred flame, the skipper agrees to lead us to his ship in exchange for us helping to set his crew free and return the ship to his command. Step one in this task is to find a way to navigate the Sea of Laneru, a task which Skipper tells us will be made much easier with the help of the ocean chart, which is held in his cabin in Skipper's retreat. The retreat is ruined after centuries of neglect, but a little resourceful use of our new claw shots allow us to ascend to the Skipper's cabin and retrieve the map. With the map in hand, Skipper marks the location of an old shipbuilding port where he thinks we might find clues as to the whereabouts of his sandship. A few exhilarating minecart rides and another fight with a Mulderock later, however, turn up no clues in our search. The only remaining possibility, Skipper informs us, is to search the ancient hideout of the Robo Pirates, the ancient enemies of the Skipper. After another quick jaunt around the Laneru Sea, we come to the Pirates' hideout. Similarly to the ancient skipper's retreat and the dry dock, the hideout is in a state of disrepair, and the pirates are long since dead. In order to proceed through the hideout, however, we are required to utilize another series of time shift stones, which bring our surroundings back to life and raring for a fight. As always, we find ourselves more than equal to the task, and we are able to discover the detached mast of the sand ship, which Fee is able to get a dousing read off of. Following the dousing signal, we embark on a search for the sand ship, but there's a catch. Skipper informs us that the ship has a cloaking device. I mean, a magical spell of concealment, <laughs> which is designed to keep the flame of Lene. <laughs> it's a... Uh, it's the Klingon bird of prey that holds the uh, sacred flame of Nehru. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Um which is designed to keep the flame of Nehru safe from those who seek to use its power for evil. With some help from our dousing, however, and a few well-placed cannon shots, we're able to see past the ship's defenses and board the immense vessel. The sand ship is seemingly abandoned, with many locked doors and inert machinery. Some exploration, however, leads us to the bow of the ship, and there stands an ancient but very much alive robo-pirate. This pirate, having stolen the ship from the skipper years ago, has maintained a vigil over the sand ship in the centuries since and will not suffer any intrusion there. A fierce duel on the prow of the ship sends the robo-pirate falling, defeated to the sands below, and as a reward, we are granted with an item that we usually get much earlier in the game. The bow. Fee explains that the bow can be used to activate certain switches on the boat, one of which reveals yet another time shift stone, which, when activated, restores the boat to full operation and the sands surrounding to salt water. Keeping our word to the skipper, we search the depths of the sand ship for his captive crew, who give us clues to the whereabouts of the sacred flame once freed from their prison. The sacred flame lies in the engine bay of the ship, which can only be opened using a key from the captain's cabin. A few journeys through the bowels of the ship lead us to our prize, and we are finally able to open the door leading to the flame, when all of a sudden giant tentacles begin tearing through the hull of the ship. We're forced to flee to the upper deck of the rapidly sinking vessel, where we find a fierce storm raging and are brought face to face with the owner of the tentacles, a monstrous kraken named Tentalus. 
the immense Leviathan tries with all of its might to drag us into the ocean and to a watery death. But quick reflexes and a good aim with our new bow help us to vanquish the monster and reveal a brazier much like the one we encountered in the ancient cistern. Once activated, this brazier is shown to hold the blue sacred flame of Nehru, which Fee uses to once again purify our blade and bring us one step closer to finding Zelda. That has been the plot recap, as read and typed by me. And let me just tell you, it takes a lot longer to type them than it takes to read them. <laughs> hey, and, I can agree with that. <laughs> and it doesn't take an inconsequential amount of time to read them. So there you go. Um, <laughs> and Lyndon, you know, you you did a wonderful job. You you did. Thank um, you. As as someone, as the person who normally reads them, I'm very proud of you. I mean, my my background is really in musical theater, so I feel like <clears throat> I feel like I'm not really getting. I, like I, you I, should I, just I, do it in song next time. I could have and I should have, but I didn't, and I'm very sorry for that. <laughs> Thank you for not. Yeah. <laughs> Despite having played this game very recently, I definitely forgot like 80 percent of what you just said. So. Thank you for the recap. <laughs> <laughs> bringing all the memories back. Well, hey, I'm glad that that was like functional, if nothing else. So good stuff. Good stuff. Part two, of course, is our takes where we talk about how this section of the game made us feel. Max, I'm going to let you go first. Um, you know, this is a very a visually distinctive section of the game with a lot of new uh, – certainly exploring a lot of new areas uh, without getting too specifically into the dungeon, which we'll get into next. Uh, How would you feel about this part of the game? Yeah, so um, going to the Sand Sea for the first time, it like it is just striking that first time you turn on the boat with the time shift stone. Um, like I remember feeling like this, this rush of exhilaration at like, Oh man, imagining the possibilities of like, man, I have a boat. There's this beautiful ocean I can explore. The visual effects are absolutely gorgeous and also very technically impressive. Um, um, that part of the game stood out to me even 10 years later. So I was really excited to get to it with this remake. Um, and, uh, trying to think there, before that there's kind of like a little bit revisiting of the the linear desert section which was a little bit less exciting um but it's kind of all washed away by the by how fun that boat moment is. i do have to ask you um, because when the second that i saw the transition from the sand sea to an actual ocean when you hit the time shift stone um obviously there's a difference in the way that the physics of that environment work once you hit the time shift stone and my first thought was i really have to ask max like how how is that working like is there like does it all just look like sand but if you were to jump into it it would be like water and it was just like a a geometry that was overlaying the water or how how does it work to have like one state and then a completely separate state that only is active when you drive over it so it's a it's a really good question, and I'm not sure that I know the answer because it is this would be extremely difficult to do in any game engine. Um, like I, this time around, I actually know a lot more about what I'm doing, and I was still I was like I don't know how they did this. I'm amazed by this. This is really impressive. Um, my guess is that they they literally just have a copy of the environment. Um, like probably that you if you load this map up in their their world editor or whatever. They probably have 
two locations and they do some sort of weird super imposition of one over the other or vice versa. Um, but that would be really hard. So maybe they have a better, more clever way of doing it that I'm not thinking of right now. And like when I, when I'm playing this, the thing that like really stands out to me is how seamless the transition as you're moving in the boat, it's a seamless transition wherever you're going. And it's, it, there's no stuttering. There's no lag. There's no, like sometimes the, the texture doesn't load correctly. And so the, you know, the, the sand doesn't turn into water quite fast enough. It's like perfect all the way across the, this entire huge chunk of map it's crazy yeah. it's awesome it's it's kind of mind-blowing uh, i mean the closest thing i've i've had with experience with that is like on destiny we have the dreaming city and the ascendant realm um but like that is that is not nearly as as fluid or like free as this setup yeah because because you don't like you don't you're not walking around in the dreaming city with the ascendant realm riding itself up around you like you you go into a portal to take you into the the ascendant realm and it's like a a new it's like a whole new map yeah it mirrors what's in the real world right but it's 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 its own distinct environment they've somehow taken two environments and made it adapt to whatever you're doing well so this is this is one of those things where look the zelda series especially in recent years when you talk about the gaps between main releases main console releases anyway um they're quite long and they usually face several rounds of delays and nobody cares because the amount of technical polish that goes into a zelda game any any zelda game um i don't think there's an exception to this rule is is really incredible and it, it, it's it's these kinds of mechanics that you got to believe like, you know, someone on the development team says, hey, guys, we need some extra time to really make this work right. And they just give it to them. And, and it's fine because Zelda is known for this level of polish and technical excellence. And that's one of the things that is so incredibly endearing about it as a game series. Uh, Triforce Heroes. That one is the exception. Uh, (laughs) Well, look, I'll just say there's a reason that Matt and I set up front that we're excluding all the multiplayer Zelda titles from our from our (laughs) retrospective. Like I've never played them. Triforce Heroes, Four Swords. I think Four Swords is probably even fun. I don't think people have a problem with that. But like, I don't know. That's just not the kind of I don't consider those core Zelda titles, really. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's there's some quotes from like Aonuma and Miyamoto where they talk about uh, like people always ask them like what is what does it mean for a game to be a Zelda game? What is the essence of Zelda? And like they always kind of have different answers because the essence they don't I don't think they even know necessarily internally <laughs> exactly what that is. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the answers that each one of them independently has given is that it's they're just really polished. Right. It's kind of like not a very fun answer, but like someone will be like, Miyamoto, what's the what's the secret of Zelda? And he's just like, we we work our asses off on it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, not in those words, but that's kind of the, the sentiment. And Alnuma has had similar things that he's said. Yeah. The secret the um, secret of Zelda is that they're just really good. <laughs> yeah. I mean <laughs> they are. <laughs> Um, <laughs> oh man! But it's true that like the level of polish that goes into like perhaps a a a one off part of a Zelda game is is abnormally high for a AAA title. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, for any title, 
Matt, you go next. Uh, how did you feel about this section of the game? So, like, I think this is probably the most fun non-dungeon section of the game that that is in that is in Skyward Sword. Like, just the 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 amount of things that you can explore now that you have the claw shots. Number one, you can actually do some real exploring, not only in the desert, but if you go back up to Skyloft, you can do a ton of side quests that are related to this, to the uh, hook shots. I didn't do that this time. I'm planning on doing that in our next section of game, but like the claw shots, hook shots, whatever, always open up just such a breadth of exploration to every section of, um, every Zelda game. So that's really cool. Um, I already talked about how amazed I am by the boat and the water and the time stone mechanics and you did as well. And so I'm not going to beat that dead horse, but like, um, the, the captain's retreat cabin is fun. The, the, the mining facility is super fun. Even the pirate stronghold, you going through that whole like mini dungeon, those really three, if you want to call it three mini dungeons, I would say like a mini dungeon and a half with the other two combined. But like, yeah, it's, um, it's there's a lot to do and none of it is boring and none of it is backtracking and none of it is none of it feels like filler and it feels like it's important and it and it feels like it's fun and i i've i loved this section of game it was a longer it was a longer chunk of game i think um from just like a time uh, a gameplay time perspective than um the Farron forest and the underwater you know water dragon cavern but um yeah, it was just really, really good. I think I felt very similarly. And uh, here's the thing. We've said before, with Skyward Sword, you are trading the in-between. So the, the stuff you do between dungeons in this game, you're trading open world, complete, open-ended exploration for what essentially amount to dungeons light, you know? And... I think that sometimes that works well in this game and other times it's kind of tedious. And in this instance, it works really well. And I think that that's mostly because this is all new area for the most part, mm-hmm. like except for except for having to go back to the area around the mine to do the silent realm. I was about to say that's really just the silent realm, though. Yeah, so exa- exactly. Exactly. Like it's just a brief stop. And then after that, you're just you're off to the skipper's retreat and the dry dock and the pirate's fortress and all these places that you've never been before. And that's all great. It's all so fun that I don't even mind that you go to the dry dock and do the mine carts and everything for no reason at all. Like you find nothing there in it. The mine carts are really fun. <laughs> yeah, they're really fun. But like you get to the end of that and skipper's like, oh, well, there was nothing here. Let's move on. Let's move on. Yeah. yeah like, <laughs> uh, so it's- I heard I heard a sigh when we mentioned the silent realm from Max. So I want to I want to I hear. We go. Yes, I want to hear Max's thoughts on the Silent Realm in general. Yeah, I, I mean they have these in Twilight Princess too. Similar concept, mm-hmm. um, where like, oh, well, we're gonna take you out of this world, put you into kind of like mini realm, mini game Twilight world, and make you like collect a bunch of shit in um, in a game loop that's outside the normal game loop. And I really, really dislike those. Um, they always feel kind of stressful. I'd never have, I never enjoy them. Um, I'm always glad when they're over. Uh, and I think a lot of it is just because they, um, they're never, you're never really exploring like a new space and the actual stealth gameplay. I don't really find very enjoyable. Stealth gameplay is hard to design and I don't think they really succeed at it. Um, and, 
boy, hopefully you don't get hit when you've already collected most of the tier. <laughs> well, that that <laughs> is that's the real, thing. Real sad. I know a lot. Of, Matt and I talked about this last week with the Farron Woods Silent Realm. I know that a lot of people don't like these, and I think a lot of it truly does come from like okay that exact thing where you've done you've spent 20 minutes in it you've done the whole thing and then you got to start completely over if you get hit right at the very end and that is frustrating and i totally get that i really do get that i um so our whole thing last week max was that we actually enjoyed the silent realms more than we remembered enjoying them um uh-huh. But maybe that was just like our our whole our hate train last week was completely revolving around the fact that you have to go back <laughs> to Skyview Temple. Temple. <laughs> For, we we really didn't like that, but um, but I don't know. I think uh, the Silent Realms, like you you mentioned, the way that it's done in Twilight Princess, and it is very similar. I like the Silent Realm in Skyward Sword more than I like Twilight Princess, just because I don't love being Wolf Link in twilight princess and those Mm -hmm. those sections of the game where you have to restore light to like a twilight soaked area of the map you are you're bound to being wolf link and trying to transverse the area in that form and that makes it inherently less fun i think at least in the skyward sword silent realm you've got your usual like range of motion and that helps there is there is some positive experience that like you can have in in the silent realms that I have had, which is like that moment of like tension and like adrenaline when like, you know, you're about to get hit and like, you're feeling the fear mounting Mm -hmm. because you have a lot of Mm -hmm. them. Like that's cool. That's a, that's, that's not an experience Zelda games normally give. And I'm not totally convinced. I think it's a great experience for a Zelda game, but it is a cool experience. And it's the sort of thing they were definitely going for. It was like that, rising tension and fear yeah. that can be released by getting the safety. Yeah, and, and to your point about like they they just reuse a space. I, like I agree, but I also I, I like the way that they reuse the space in the silent realms but also make it a little bit different where you don't have any tools to traverse the area. You have to rely solely on Link's, you know, base range of motion. You've got the added difficulty of you have to get certain things in timers. Like I I definitely I wouldn't say that the silent realms in general are a strong part of Skyward Sword at all but I think to Lyndon's point like we both came away from our first and at least in my opinion our second experience with the Silent Realm saying you know what that was I see what they're going <laughs> for and I can appreciate it for what it is and I don't hate it yeah definitely it's it's kind of that that general idea that I I believe Skyward Sword is about 30 percent too long um and those are the, so the silent realms would be on the chopping block. Mm-hmm. If someone was like, Max, make this a tighter, more tightly edited experience, I would chop them off. Yeah. Uh, Along with the tad tones. <laughs> Along with the tad yeah. tones. Oh my <laughs> God. No, no doubts there. Um, putting the silent realms to one side, I think that just like from a, from a tone standpoint and from an aesthetic standpoint, I love this area of the game because, and, and this was kind of done in the Lineru mine section as well, where the time shift stones kind of give a dual purpose to every area that you're in, you know, the, the switch from ruined desert to lush landscape. It was cool in the, in the uh, Lineru mine section. And I think it's even cooler in this section of the game because you're able to have this cool, like nautical theme, but it's in the desert, you know, like you're, you're in like ports and harbors and all these interesting places. It's got this heavy like pirate and ship captain theme that you're doing, but it's in the middle of the desert. And 
via the time shift stones, you're able to switch back and forth between the two. And I just think that that's really cool. I mean, that's a really interesting way to um, to layer experiences in one section of the map. They are very highly contrasting like aesthetics and stuff mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah. The, you know, the orange sand versus the blue water. Yep. And it's beautiful uh, water. Like this is Hawaii esque water. <laughs> like, right. Wow. Yeah. It's like, man, these robots lived in paradise. Right. Um, speaking of robots, uh, this section of the game is always conjures big questions in my mind about like, what the hell is going on in this world? Like where did the robots come robot from? Civilization. <laughs> uh, they were fighting pirates um, <laughs> someone ordered them to guard the flame uh yeah no there's a lot of unanswered questions here for sure it's awesome i uh i'm personally not a fan of of the like total full-blown sci-fi goofy robots um they don't feel like they belong in the zone I, to me. I completely agree with you honestly like i don't love like Lyndon was talking last week about or maybe the week before about um, Scrapper, the uh, the flying robot that you get from Gondo, the junk shop dude. Like the robots feel out of place to me in Zelda in general. Um, we did kind of make some loose connections between the technology that's there, and it, it has some thematic similarities to what you see with the Guardians in Breath of the Wild. So there's some very very loose thematic lines there. Um, yeah, this kind of like fantasy techno thing. I mean, yeah. I think Breath of the Wild most definitely did it better, but maybe having played and loved Breath of the Wild recently made me feel more positive on on that than I would have otherwise. I don't, I don't know. But. Yeah, it's the the Breath of the Wild robots. You've probably know this. You probably both know this, but they have their their design is based on um, an ancient ancient era of pottery style. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Japan. Yep. Um, they feel simultaneously like this weird anachronistic tech while also feeling like they belong in this kind of ancient setting. Um, whereas Skyward Sword does this weird thing where like all of the NPC races, right? Like the, the mole people, the, the tree people whose name I'm forgetting. Kikwis. Uh, Kikwis. Yeah. Yeah. They all feel mildly, they feel goofier than the rest of the game. Yeah. Um, they feel like they would belong in the Wind Waker. So I, I was thinking, uh, I was thinking really the same thing. Like when it comes down to characterization in Skyward Sword, like the the main characters, Groose, Zelda, Link, even the people of Skyloft, uh, they feel very appropriate to the game and to the environment in which they are in. Uh, Kikwis, I I have never really loved the Kikwis. They just are kind of childish in my opinion like not not as they act like children but like the whole design of the character like they're so cowardly and they're also cute fluffy and whatever i'm like eh, whatever um i think the only ones i really get behind are um the squids Uh, what are they called i don't even remember what they're called the squid people who live in the the waterways of farron woods like i can get behind that um and yeah. I think other than that, I, I don't love the native races of the surface world all that much. Um, I think that, you know, it would have been better served to just stick with Gorons in Elden Volcano and, and maybe some precursor to the Koroks in, um, in Farron Woods. And, you know, if we kind of stuck to that, I don't really know with the time stone mechanic um, in Lanayru Desert. I don't know how you could have done that with an organic race 
because that yeah. wouldn't have worked super well, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. One thing I think is interesting, Matt, is that I feel like in a previous episode, we said that Gorko the Goron is the only Goron you meet in this yes, game. Yes, I, di- I did say that, and we meet two more in this section. So Yeah, we I've, do. Yeah, so there's definitely more Gorons out there, so that's a flub on our part. Sorry yeah, about that. But um, Okay, so th- some, some good words generally about this section of the game. Before we move on, I do just want to say that, again – like Max, you said that there are no really bad dungeons in this game, and I agree with that. Um, I'm going to reiterate again that I don't think that there's a bad soundtrack anywhere in this game. Like the music is all awesome, and I love the Lanayru mm-hmm. Sans C music. It's great. Let's go ahead and move on to part three, which is the dungeon map, where we analyze this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. And Max, before we start talking about the dungeon more specifically like the mechanics and what you think about it. I just want to let you know that Matt and I are approaching this conversation off of last week's episode where we said we think that Ancient Cistern is our favorite dungeon of the game, but we don't want to render like judgment on that until after we've had this conversation and after we've played this dungeon. So we've all done that now. Let's get into it. What do you think of the Lanayru Sandship? All right. So uh, I think this is this is the dungeon that impressed me the most in this entire game. Um, but not aesthetically. Uh, <laughs> this is all about the, the, the design of the uh, the puzzles and the layout and the kind of the story of it. Um, Zelda dungeons uh, are really hard to make. Um, and I think people who don't have game design experience probably underestimate generally how hard these are to make because I don't think almost any other company in the game industry could successfully make Zelda dungeons. Um, they are enormous investments of time and resources on Nintendo's part. My guess is that a given dungeon designer on a Zelda game probably only works on like two dungeons over the course of years. Um, and they probably have teams of artists and engineers that are helping them out the whole time. Um, I'm, I'm guessing a dungeon in a Zelda game is kind of comparable in scope to like a Destiny raid, which is a, a huge undertaking at our company. Wow, that's a really um, that's a very interesting line to draw between. That two. Is, I was about like, to say the same thing. I've done a lot of raiding in Destiny, and I've played a lot of dungeons in Zelda, and I've never thought of them in the same way before. But I, I am now, and that's fascinating. Um. Yeah, I kind of when I had when I first made that connection, I was like, "Is this really true?" And I, and I think it might be. Uh, <laughs> obviously, I don't don't have a total view into their development process, but anyway, so lots of lots of effort, and they kind of do this thing where they, you know, they build these interconnected puzzles where stuff you do in one room can affect the state of things in another room, which is pretty unique. Not many other games do that, and they also do it while teaching the player the mechanics of the dungeon. Um, one of the hardest things to do in game design is, is basically what we, we call it on-ramping. Um, ramping a player on to a new mechanic or a new concept that they haven't encountered before. Uh, or making them look at an old concept in a new way. And designing the pacing of a dungeon so that it gradually introduces players to these, to these new concepts or new mechanics um, in a way where like, oh, the first time they encounter it, it's kind of their hand is held in some subtle way. Like maybe the camera is panning so that it gives you a view of something at the same time. Another thing is giving you a hint about it. Like they do all this stuff that's pretty subtle to try to get you to like 
take these steps one at a time to learn how a mechanic works. Um, so that's a normal Zelda dungeon. A thing that is pretty rare in Zelda dungeons because it's an extra dimension that is even harder to balance on top of all that is uh, most Zelda dungeons are not, they don't really make sense as actual places in the game world, right? You're not, you don't look at a Zelda dungeon. You're like, Oh yeah, this is the kitchen. This is the dormitory. Like I understand the function of the space in a narrative way. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you don't, right. They're just kind of like random rooms. You don't understand the, uh, the real world function of Ocarina of Time's water temple. exactly (laughs) Um, and then every once in a while they drop a dungeon where it's like this on top of doing all those other things that are really hard that Zelda dungeons alone do they also made it work as a functional space the snow peak temple whatever it's called uh, snow peak and twilight princess is an example of this Um, and in skyward sword the sand ship is an example of this um, it the space all makes sense. You see, you know you know the function of it, and I find that just the fact that they managed to build unique and interesting um, puzzle design on top of that, or in in parallel with that, I should say, um, is just a really impressive feat of game design. I could go on, but I want to give one of you a chance. To no, 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 it's okay. That. And I and I actually completely agree with you from like an immersion standpoint. It, it really goes a very long way, and I do appreciate that. Um, I, I enjoyed this dungeon quite a lot. Uh, I think that just from a from a puzzle solving mechanic, having an element, the time shift stone, which alters the uh, which alters every room that you're in at any given time, and having that one time shift stone accessible from lower parts of the dungeon so like you get the bow and a lot of these puzzles revolve around having to use the bow to shoot through a grate back to the first time shift stone that you encounter which is on the mast of the ship i think it's really really stinking cool you like know? especially when you consider <laughs> that each of these individual rooms like when you open the door that is that and normally and correct me if i'm wrong here max but normally like when you have the whole open door mechanic and it like cuts to black and then you enter the room and you like fade back in that's like a, a, a secret loading uh, scene more or less without having a whole loading bar the fact that they're able to do yeah. that and still connect it to the the rest of the ship where the time stone is, is wildly cool because I feel like in an older Zelda game, the way this would have been done is, you know, the puzzles are basically the same as they are here, except each cluster of rooms that you're in has its own time shift stone that you have to find some way to activate. And here you're just interacting with the main one that's on the mast of the ship. And it's, it's just so cool and it really gives you a sense of place and makes the ship feel like one interconnected one body. interconnected environment. Yeah. It's awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole the whole dungeon, like the theme of this dungeon from a puzzle design standpoint, is is to get the player to think about where they are in relation to that one stone. Like all the puzzles are about like how do you get a sight line to the stone from this room that you're in and like how can you open shutters or doors at the right time to give you the angle you need um and like every time you take a step forward in the dungeon it's because you figured something out about that other than the very beginning of course before you've found the time ship stone at all at all yeah yeah um but that's a pretty unique setup like no other Zelda dungeon has really done that 
like central switch that you need to always be aware of. Um, so I think, and that's why I think the only other one that I can think of that has something similar is um, Snowhead in Majora's Mask, where it all revolves around the central ice pillar that you have to manipulate as you go up and down the dungeon. Would you say that that's similar or dissimilar? Um, it's definitely got some similarities. Uh, it's not about sight lines in that one. Mm-hmm. Like you need to navigate, like you need to think about where you are from a navigation standpoint in relation to it, but you don't need to think about it in more like precise terms. Like if I stand here in this room, maybe I can see it. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. Um, as much. Yeah. I think that it's, I see where you're coming from, Matt in, in snowhead temple and Majora's mask. I think where it really differs is that, you do like you come out a door and you're facing that pillar and then you right. have to interact with it, you know? Um, and here it's very much just like you have to, uh, pay attention to the aesthetic cues that are happening, which is like, Oh, there's a shaft of light coming in through the ceiling. And if I look up at that, there's a grate, and the time shift stone is on the other side of it. It's like, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's necessarily subtle, but it's also not the kind of thing that Zelda dungeons, especially if you've been playing Zelda for a long time, it's not the kind of thing you're necessarily trained to look for in a Zelda dungeon. And I really appreciated that about it. Yeah, I totally agree. I think like one of the things that um, I really um, – one of the things that I would say I didn't dislike, but that I had a harder time with was there's the section where you're activating the second generator and you have to time back and forth, whether you have it activated or the time stone activated or deactivated. And you're going back and forth between these four rooms over and over again. And like, I feel like that section could have been a little bit more smooth. Um, and maybe I just totally botched it and made myself go in and out of the rooms 10 times without needing to. But, um, there were some times that that was a little harder to navigate for me than, than nest than I feel like was necessary. But overall, I have to completely agree that the way the dungeon functions as, as a functional ship and, and the way that you move throughout it. And it's, it feels like you're not, it's in a small space. So you are doing backtracking, but it doesn't feel like you're necessarily doing, a ton of intentional backtracking. You're accomplishing very different things when you're going back and forth and you're accomplishing them in their different time states. And it's affecting the way that that whole dungeon, um, is able to be interacted with once you do that. So the way that they handled the, the backtracking within a more confined space is done very, very, very well. Yeah. It's like if, if you're playing with a Rubik's cube and you, you know, you turn it right one time and then you do some other changes. If you turn it left, afterwards you're not really backtracking right because some of the the context is different right. like the status of things is different um and you're trying to get all these all the pieces to align how you need them to yeah i think i, I agree with all of that um the one that i really enjoyed was whenever you have to exit the porthole on the side of the ship and you've got to figure out that the way to do that is to lower the lifeboat that you saw when you were coming onto the ship yeah. like there's nothing and and this is what i love there's no there's no camera sweep that shows you the lifeboat and says, this is the thing you're looking for. You know, it's all down to you to remember that there was a lifeboat there and it's like, oh, there's a switch that I can hit with my bow. That probably does something. You know, it's all very like you have to discover it for yourself. It's very much not holding your hand. The lifeboat is a leap, a leap of logic, right? Like up until that point, you've never really had to think about 
outside the, the confines of the ship. Suddenly you need to, like, in order to solve that puzzle, you need to, to do the lateral thinking and be like, oh, yeah, there's like an outside landscape along the edges of this that maybe I can interact with. Yeah. Um, so that's a cool thing to ask the player to have to think about. But that makes sense as soon as you, like, as soon as you start thinking about every area of this dungeon as one interconnected thing, like we were saying earlier, it just feels so much more natural, mm-hmm. right? Yep. And uh, this is one of the big benefits of doing a designing a space that is purpose built, like narratively intuitive, because knowing that this is a ship, that it has everything a ship would have, you know, sort of <laughs> uh, a robot, ancient robot ship would have. Um, yeah, I was going to say, we never saw the galley. You, yeah. Uh, but like you can kind of put two and two together. You're like, oh, yeah, there are lifeboats. Like I saw them out of the corner of my eye earlier. Like. And you can kind of make that intuitive leap a little bit more easily because you understand the relationships from real life between boats and lifeboats. Yeah. Yep. 100%. Uh, Before we go too much further, we usually set aside a section of the dungeon map to talk about the item that we get in the dungeon. Obviously, the bow is a quintessential Zelda item, and what it is and the way that it works is pretty standard throughout the entire series. I do just want to take two seconds before we move any further to ask you guys, Matt and Max, do you like this version of the bow? And do you feel like we maybe deserved to get it a little bit earlier in the game than we actually did? I would like to go first if you don't mind, Max. Go for it. I I actually very much love this version of the bow on stick and button control. I hate it's so much easier. I hate the bow and I hate the slingshot in motion control. It just moves around way too much. Um, This bow, when you're on stick and button, is really solid. I like that there's a differential between like the charge up meter where you fill up the red reticle to whether or not you're shooting like full power or not. I think that's really, really cool. Um, the upgraded versions of the bow that you can get throughout the game, just they give it more and more power. It's a very powerful version of the bow. It one shots red bow goblins like yeah. right off the bat. It's yeah. a very powerful bow. I, I really, really like this bow. I wish we had gotten it three dungeons ago. <laughs> like, <laughs> like in my opinion, in a Zelda game, and maybe this just comes from me playing, Ocarina of Time and Majora's Mask very first in my Zelda life where the bow is like the second or third item you get. Um, I have always felt that the bow is really a quintessential and necessary part of Link's arsenal and to get it this late in the game is kind of frustrating to me. And that's always been one of the things about the item um, the item economy I guess we'll say um, in Skyward Sword that has annoyed me. Is like I go till the lit. It's the literal last thing I get, and I I don't love that. Yeah, I think that there's a big chunk of the game. that go for it, Matt or Lyndon. Well, I was just gonna say I think it's interesting because uh, and and actually getting getting a little ahead of myself here. Uh, just because after we're done recording this episode, we're gonna record a bonus episode with Max where we talk about the differences between Breath of the Wild and Skyward Sword specifically, and just like juxtapose those two games. But I think this is one of those big moments where like in Breath of the Wild, 
you're lousy with bows. I mean, it's like one of the first things that you get in the game and you're just like drowning in them forever. And it's because they're they're very much a combat tool and not a puzzle solving tool for the most part in Breath of the Wild. Um, And Breath of the Wild is also a much more open ended game that does not revolve nearly as much around on rails puzzle solving as Skyward Sword does. But because Skyward Sword is that kind of game, the bow comes to us here in a dungeon that it, it, like puzzle solving in this dungeon is completely revolving around the bow and the abilities that it gives you. So I understand why it was introduced a little bit later, but I do understand what you're saying, Matt, that from like a, uh, I don't know, from a narrative immersion standpoint, not having the bow as Link until this point in the game is kind of jarring like it, it's it's i i definitely i wish we had a combat version of the bow earlier agreed <laughs> yeah that's what i was gonna say was that you can really feel the absence of any ability to do range damage for a, like hours and hours before this in this game um because like the slingshot doesn't really damage things it just stuns them throw bombs yeah like you you don't have a way to hurt things to defeat enemies from far away until you get this bow and you're like i don't know like 85 percent of the way through the game at this point yeah so if Um, you follow that is a little weird if you follow zelda dungeon.net this is chapter 11 of 18 so you're just a little bit over half well yeah but a huge so so, and and i'm just (laughs) i'm just saying that i'm saying that for this reason i don't I, I obviously I agree every, with everything you just said, Max, but like I feel that most acutely with these electric enemies like the electric Bokoblins. I would love in the entire section of the Lanayru Desert, which Zelda Dungeon classifies as chapter six. I think that was our chapter four. I don't know. Four. Whatever. Yeah. Four. Um, like. Man, I can't tell you how useful a bow would have been for the entire section of a Lanayru Desert, Lanayru Mining Facility. Just to- but the thing is, Matt, you say that okay. So if you if you break it down by chapters, this is a, a chapter eleven out of eighteen. Okay, so that sounds like just a shade over halfway through the game. But like gameplay time wise, but this is the second to last dungeon. Like, not really, because we've got. Fire Sanctuary, then we've got Song of the Hero, then we've got Skykeep. And well, like Okay, so you only is so Skykeep is its own thing, whatever. Song of the Hero, none of that is like that's it's all not just, technically a dungeon. It's You're not right. a dungeon. It's just like roaming around the world doing frankly Filler. Not, <laughs> not great. Like so um so yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's fair. Maybe this is a difference in the 85% way eighty-five percent of the meaningful content. Okay. Maybe this is a, a difference in the way that we look at the content in this game and the progression of this game versus the intention of the people who designed it. Like, right. uh, like I, I'm sure these people thought that everything you do after the fire sanctuary is much more impactful and than it actually is. Than it actually is, but that is not the case. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, fair. There is an interesting element here, um, which is that they clearly had this. They wanted to make the motion control sword combat the star of this game, right? Right. And giving you range damage dealing actually undermines that goal. And I think that's why the the bow isn't given to you until so late in this game. Lyndon and I just made a face at each other because neither of us had considered that whatsoever. Yeah, that's. 
that sounds so accurate <laughs> that I can't argue with it at any point whatsoever. Yeah. Well, the nice thing is that I think the sword combat in Skyward Sword is, is amazing. Is is good. Like it's really good. Um, you know, people have had their qualms with the Wii Motion Plus in the original version, and it's definitely a different way of engaging in combat in a Zelda game. But I think Matt and I both feel that it's really fun and it is a really good mechanic to build a game around and i don't know where you're at with that max but i i think it's a great mechanic um i've always i always loved even originally i loved skyward swords combat around the motion controls yeah so i mean so i guess to put a cap on the bow discussion i will agree with you that combat in this game up until now has been fun enough to where I ain't mad, you know, it's fine. <laughs> and like, I, I think, I think this feels weird to get the bow this late just because we're used to getting the bow so early. And that's the only reason. Like, I have to agree with that. And yeah. Like, like it, I said, I think that's my bias just in general. It, it It's annoying in cases like, you know, those lava dudes that like pop up in the lava just out of sword reach and you have to kill them with a bomb. It's like every time you have to swap items and do some like use up a resource you kind of have a limited number of to take out one of these guys in a way that feels clunky like that's whatever that's when i wish i had yeah all the the little froggo things that shoot fire or electricity at you like man so easy with a bow so also just a a brief aside i really wish you could use the bow while you're flying on your loft wing that would be so cool Okay, well, there are a lot of things that I wish you could do while you were flying on your loft wing. There's like, <laughs> there, there's a lot of things just in general that I like wish. have fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ouch. The funnest, the funnest thing about flying okay. on your loft wing is the very first thing you ever do on your loft wing, which is uh, do that race to get the statue. Everything after that is just kind of a chore. <laughs> Matt and I have... have gone on record at length on this show talking about how much we see the sky in skyward sword as a huge, huge missed, missed opportunity. opportunity like just a massively missed opportunity yeah which is sad but it is what it is yeah i have many thoughts on the sky which but i guess that'll be that'll be the bonus, we'll episode. Get into that on the bonus <laughs> episode yay <laughs> that's our that's our plug for the bonus episode listen to the bonus episodes they're great um <laughs> yeah Okay, so that was our dungeon item. Let's move on to the dungeon boss, Tentalus. Wait, can we talk about the pirate boss first? We didn't talk about the pirate mini boss. Uh, sure. You know what? If you if you have strong feelings about that fight, then go for it. I think it's a almost as fun version of the Girahim fights. Like, obviously, he doesn't do any of the range stuff or the fancy movements, but I think it's really fun. It's like um, it's almost like fencing where you have the the singular corridor and you're backing each other up and you're going back and forth on this uh, narrow corridor. I really like this fight. I find it very enjoyable, but also not like overly challenging it's also a thousand times easier on stick and button than it is in motion control from the wii motion plus um i did not get hurt a single time on the stick and button i remember on the wii u motion plus i always had a very hard time getting link to swing the way i wanted him to swing and um i really liked the way that this works with uh this the stick and button hey max which control scheme are you using i i wanted to use motion controls um but it was easier for me to to play if i was able to play in handheld mode so i ended up using stick and button. and so i think Lyndon and i both are kind of coming at this from that same direction of 
I wanted to use the Switch motion controls because I always expected them to be far superior to the Wii Motion Plus. And in the one or two times that I have used them, they are. But that being said, the stick and button layout is by far the superior way to play this game, in my opinion. I agree. I really do agree. I think that uh, we've said this before. Anytime I fire up the motion controls and you go into that that little subscreen where it's like telling you how to calibrate it and all that bs like immediately don't want to do it yeah like it's an immediate buzzkill <laughs> like it's like nope i'm done like that's just <laughs> i mean that's that's an extra step that i do not want to go through but i will say that there are trade-offs there are certain things that are easier on the motion controls certain things that are easier on the stick and button layout and one of the things that is much easier we've said this before one of the things that is much easier on the motion controls is the fight the fatal blow Oh, so much way, easier. Way, way easier. Uh, on the button layout, one of the things that's way easier is shield parries and yes. sword stabs. Shield parries and sword and, stabs are awesome. And this fight, the Robo Pirate fight, is much easier if shield parries are easier, mm-hmm. which is what I found. And it, it's great. And I do like this fight, Matt. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, it's fun because since you're completely constricted to one horizontal space like there's no room for like strafing or whatever uh it forces you to think much more uh i don't know it it forces you to have much more presence of mind about the way like you can't you can't mash this boss to death for sure especially because his parry his parries (laughs) with his hook hand are very good he's very good at parrying you with that hook hand and it stuns you for like half a second and then he can easily follow up with a quick swipe so it's definitely a much more fencing-esque battle that i enjoy yeah okay so uh i think this is a very interesting fight um the fact that you are first of all it's one of the only fights that's not just health based right it's not about damage it's about the tug of war reverse tug of war i guess of gaining or losing ground um i personally find this to be the hardest fight in the game uh, by a lot um, and part of the part of the reason for that is because once you is because your mistakes compound right it's all about momentum and if you start making a mistake it's actually you actually get more stressed because you begin losing ground and it's easier to make the mis- to make further mistakes um so it's it's a stressful it's more stressful than other boss fights um and it has i i would guess that this is a fight that makes people drop the game more than other fights do really um i mean probably maybe not a lot of people right but like every game like a lot of people do not finish the games they start that's kind of just a normal thing right some smaller smaller than you would expect percentage of gamers beat games um the water temple and ocarina of time is a spot where they lose players yeah uh and I, I'm guessing this fight, from a from a combat perspective, this fight probably loses more people to combat difficulty than any other fight in this game, because there's no room to fail. Um, or or if you're if you're prone to failure, like if you're, if you're not as skilled at the the inputs or the combat in some fashion, it can be really hard to. You can't just beat it, brute force it with a potion because you'll just lose the ground you make. You have to like consecutively succeed at the combat. Well, even even in terms of visual cues that the enemy is giving to you, you know. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that this is a lot of fun. And I I really do believe look, I I'm not 
I'm definitely not upset about where the Zelda series went after this game. I think that Breath of the Wild is a transformative, incredible game. But one of the things that does make me sad about Skyward Sword and the legacy that it has and how how their design aesthetic has moved on from it is that we will never get another version of this style of combat in a Zelda game. I don't know if that's true, but I got to believe that it probably won't, you know? Um, and I think that this fight, I agree with you, is a, is an excellent showcase for really what this system of combat is able to accomplish. And in a lot of ways, it's so much more immersive than just hitting hit button to swing sword, you know? Um, and for that reason, I also like it quite a lot. And I agree with you, Max. I think that it is one of the more challenging fights in this game, and it's challenging around the main mechanic of this game. It is fulfilling the promise of sword combat in Skyward Sword, and I think that it deserves a lot yeah. of praise for that. It's it's the boss where you need to learn shield parrying. You can get through the whole rest of the game without it. It's really important for this boss. Um, it's what we would call a skill check. <laughs> Um, like if you were faking if you were faking it up until now that won't work anymore <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i love that i love that encourage encourage your player base to become proficient that's a good that's a good concept i think so okay we've got the mini boss out of the way let's talk about the boss boss which is tentalus, tentalus. and i was telling matt last week that um I, I so I, I was saying at the top of the dungeon map that we have already said we weren't sure whether we like Ancient Cistern or the Sand Sea or the Sand Ship more. And I did say after fighting Kalaktos last week that I think that he is my favorite boss in this game. But that being said, I don't want to at all diminish just how fun of a boss fight Tentalus is from a, like a setting and atmosphere standpoint. Um, from a difficulty standpoint and just from like a, I don't know, from a tone setting standpoint. I mean, you go into that room and immediately the ship starts getting torn to pieces and you have to like flee the rapidly flooding ship. I think that's just such a fun, fun set piece. Um, it's very, I mean, we were, t we were making allusions to Pirates of the Caribbean earlier, and this is kind of the Pirates of the Caribbean chunk of this game, right? <laughs> Where it's like, we know we're on a boat, boat's sinking, and something's tearing it to pieces. Stop blowing holes in my ship! Exactly. It's just, it's, I don't know, it's a lot of fun. But I do think, um, I think that this boss fight is a great time. It's just hard enough. Occasionally, it's a little bit harder than it needs to be, just because his stupid eye is moving very around. hard to hit sometimes yeah it's moving around <laughs> faster than like than you can aim exactly and, and one of the things that i don't love about this game is that depth perception is is sometimes deceiving um i also have this problem on stupid what's his face's floating rupee island where you have to land on a, oh yeah <laughs> yeah where you have to land on a particular space Ugh. yeah and it's like without without fail i'll hit all the rings i won't hit any of his stupid penalty balls and then I, I will think i'm a shoe in to land on that 50 rupee space and then you hit the you hit the black rupee and you lose everything they, yes they should have made it a, a 3ds game I, with that depth perception. I as actually, a slider i'm so glad i beat that mini game on the very first try so that i never have to do it again and then i went and did it again because i wanted some more rupees to buy the last um adventure pouch <laughs> i actually had a very hard time with it <laughs> 
So I think I just got lucky the first time. But yeah, I, I agree. I think Tentalus is a very fun boss. I think it's a fun way of not only utilizing the bow, but also utilizing the Skyward Strike in an actual combat scenario. And that's fair, because that's not a thing that this game makes you do a lot. Yeah. It's very interesting that um, they kind of force you to to think about how you're interacting with this, the Skyward Strike mechanic, not only from you have to use it to sever his tentacles as he's trying to hit you while you're on the the uh, the deck. But then once you get him down, if you don't get under his little hair tentacles, you have to use a Skyward Strike to even clear a path to hit the eye. So I think that's kind of fun um, and also a good way to... Um, to force you into that um, key puzzle solving world um, manipulating mechanic that they then turn into a combat mechanic here. Yeah. Max, what did you think of Tentalus? Uh, quick thought on the Skyward Sword, the Skyward Strike thing. Um, I bet players use it more often in motion control settings because it's how they calibrate. Um, so it kind of comes up naturally. It has its own pressure. Yeah. And when you're in when you're in the stick settings, you don't have that pressure anymore. Um, anyways, Tentalus. Uh, to be completely honest, I don't find Tentalus very memorable, which is weird because it's like this very bombastic, like set piece, like tons of you know effort went into this boss. Um, it feels like a, a almost like a PlayStation Two God of War boss. It's like. It's huge. It's doing like environment changing attacks. It has a bunch of these like scripted moments that it goes through that you trigger based on your progress through the fight. Um, and that's all actually pretty unusual in a Zelda game, right? Like the other the other bosses, they're more like these combatants that act like a normal monster does. Like they're in the space with you. They have behaviors. You can kind of like circle around them. You can kind of bait their attacks and dodge them. But this boss is like this big room size thing. Um, I find it, it's design is like vaguely unsettling to me. Like in a, <laughs> for sure. In like an uncanny Valley sort of way. Right. Like it's too humanoid for a squid monster. I heard someone say like, why does it look like you're fighting Mike Wazowski's girlfriend from monsters Inc. And I was like, I mean, well, it's like they had a baby fair. and that baby is Tentalus. You know? <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> Yeah, I get that. <laughs> no, I, I definitely understand that. I think from a artistic standpoint, it doesn't necessarily fit into Zelda the way a lot of bosses do. I mean, to use the other example we were just talking about, Kaloktos. I mean, that is a boss that feels very Zelda. It is aesthetically very in line with the dungeon that you just beat. And so in some ways you you just expect it, you know, and it feels right. This boss is very in some ways kind of feels like it came out of another game just just visually you know <laughs> yeah I, I totally see what you mean um it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like it goes well with the aesthetic of this sand ship um and these robots right uh yeah no it's kind of just it goes with the it goes with a ship but not this ship Right. I agree with that. I think maybe a lot of my positive feelings toward this boss just stem from the fact I was telling Matt this last week. A lot of the boss fights at the end of dungeons in this game get uh, they end up just being gear him fights. 
And it's not that I dislike Garahim fights, but I always feel a little shortchanged when that's the boss fight of a dungeon because I'm used mm-hmm. – <laughs> right, yeah, like I'm used to the boss at the end of a dungeon being – uh, like revolving around mechanics based on the item I found in the dungeon. And this boss definitely is that. And so maybe I just appreciate it more in this game from that standpoint. Um, but I, I definitely understand everything you're saying, Max. And I don't disagree. Like I said, I don't think that this is the high watermark of, of dungeon boss in Skyward Sword. That is absolutely Kalaktos, but it's fun enough. You know, it's a good time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's definitely I, I mean i enjoy this boss fight more than i enjoy other boss fights in other zelda games for sure it's somewhere in the middle for me yeah i mean it definitely didn't make our top 10 ranking on that bonus episode in ocarina of time but you know it's it's definitely a good one yeah um again i i i personally love gear him boss fights personally so i think we'll just have to agree to disagree on that particular point but um <laughs> you know it's it's a fun one for sure yeah okay uh, i no uh, yeah we'll, we'll go on yeah <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll move forward we'll, we'll talk about that in the bonus episode as well yeah okay so that has been the dungeon map let's move quickly on to part four which is where we talk side quests matt give us the fastest rundown that you possibly can on side quests that you got done in this section of the game Mostly for this section of the game, I just I just went and collected a bunch of goddess cubes. Um, I I got all the ones that are in the Lanayru Desert, and um, while I was in Skyloft, I bought the last adventure pouch. I helped Fledge with his second dose of steroids, and that was <laughs> pretty much it, actually. Yeah, that's all I did too. Really, I upgraded a shield. I got the goddess or the sacred shield and upgraded it to the divine shield. I didn't have enough. Uh, skull ornaments and now i do and so i'm gonna do that next okay time. yeah but that that's all i did as well uh let's get out of that and move into the more interesting part five which is z targeting where we lock onto fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross max if you had to if you had to pick one interesting character from this section of the game uh what would it be um i i think i'm going to say the not the pirate captain, but the the robot captain. The skipper takes you. The skipper, um, because I mean he's kind of he's, he's a really sad story, right? Like that poor guy. He wakes up and he knows that's like thousands of years in the future, and his people are dead. He even like talks about it a little bit at one point, um, and but he still wants you to go back in time and help him save his friends. And uh, I don't know. He's he's kind of he's a pretty effective. A- affective character <laughs> affective with an a yeah mm, very definitely nice. very nice i agree with that matt z targeting go fledge i uh i have a soft spot for fledge being the you know you and i both Lyndon, can kind of relate to this being the scrawny kid that grows up and you know we can assume that these guys are mostly like high school age right i i relate to fledge's desire to be better right and his his best friend is link who's like literally the hero of the entire story and he's like i want to be like link i can relate to that very heavily and so i I have a soft spot for fledge and i appreciate that not only is he aware of where he's at currently but he's doing a lot to improve his situation and he's working hard he is taking steroids which i don't love fledge we can do this without the steroids (laughs) but um you know what 
I appreciate your hard work to to better yourself. So are so we? Thank you. Are we link pushing performance enhancing drugs? On Absolutely, Fledge? for sure. We are. We are Fledge's <laughs> drug dealer. We don't even charge him for them. Like like he, he doesn't even charge Fledge for the drugs. First, first couple are free. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm gonna go with Fledge. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to go with the Robo Pirate Captain because obviously as an enemy, he's really cool. But the narrative You're continuing around- the trend of choosing enemies. Yeah, but this one especially, like Fee mentions something when you beat him about how Fee is reluctantly uh, admiring of the fact that this Robo Pirate maintained its life over the centuries on this ship since capturing it. And I think that's a really cool villain thing. Like, in some ways, I sort of wish that the Robo Pirate Captain had come back as the main boss of that would have been neat. This dungeon, like, in a larger way, just because from a narrative standpoint, the fact that this pirate captured the ship from the skipper and has just like been it, chilling there for a few centuries. Yeah, and in this world where in present day everything is broken down and only things only come to life when you activate a time shift stone, but that robo pirate has just been there the whole time making sure that nothing takes this boat from it. I think that's really cool. I think it's a really cool uh, I don't know that that, that's a really cool story point around an enemy. I like it. I can totally get on board with that. Yeah. The first, first time I played this game, I definitely thought he was going to come back as the boss in his past self version. Oh, that would have been cool. Pristine pre-aged version of himself. That would have been, and I was afraid. Yeah, that would have been really fun. Although I can't, I can't really think how you would possibly use the bow against him, but yeah, that that would have been awesome. Well, imagine a boss fight where the robo pirate is the enemy, but using the bow, you have to continue interacting with the time shift stone and the mast to like do damage phases oh. to Oh, that would have been cool, <laughs> man. That would have been so cool. Just a, just a little thought right off the top of the old noggin. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that has been part five, Z-targeting. Let's move into part six, which is our final thoughts on this section of the game. Matt, wrap it up for us. What did you think of this section of the game succinctly? For sure. Uh, Succinctly is going to be a little difficult, so one second. The Laneru Sand Sea leading up to the Sand Ship is probably the strongest section of Skyward Sword that lands in the back half. You explore a lot of new areas. The environment is beautiful. The enemies are challenging. The item you get is influential to this portion of the game and the rest of the game. The Sand Ship is arguably the best or second best dungeon of the entire game um, with a less than stellar final boss, but the whole section overall... Um, even though narratively is not as um, impactful as some others, is just so much fun. And there's so many really awesome things that showcase the strength of Skyward Sword as an installation in the Zelda franchise. So we've been beating around the bush here. I'm going to add a temporary part seven to the Sacred Realms rundown. And all that that is, is I would like each of us to say whether or not we feel like, on balance, the Lanayru Sand Ship is better or worse than the Ancient Cistern. Like, Matt, we were saying it last week. 
which which is the best dungeon in this game and we were reserving judgment and now the time has come we've played them both do you need time to think about it because I, I i definitely need time to think about it max you go first which is better ancient cistern or okay. lenary sandship uh i i think sandship is better um I think it is a much more interesting dungeon design. It is more fun to play through and solve. I think Ancient Cistern is stronger thematically and aesthetically, though. So, overall sandship, but, you know, they got different and strong strengths. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. All right. I am going to cast my vote for the Ancient Cistern. I... It is much more uh, linear in its arrangement than the sandship. And that is at times a bit of a buzzkill. But the fact that you have got basically two dungeons within the cistern, you've got a water temple and a shadow temple. You have an incredible aesthetic, um, an incredible thematic, uh, uh, like an incredible overarching thematic um, sensibility, especially knowing the backstory of like, you know, what we were talking about last week, the whole spider's thread story that kind of inspired the dungeon. Uh a great soundtrack. And then also, I think the thing that really puts it over the top for me is the fact that Kaloktos is just such a damn good boss in the ancient cistern. I think that probably gives it the edge, honestly. Uh, like if, if you're putting bosses to one side, I think that the dungeons are equal for different reasons. But, uh, but once you add in the final boss, ancient cistern really does come out on top for me, I think. So it's right, down so to guess, you, Matt. You're the I was about to say, I guess it's my turn. Um, so <laughs> I am I'm actually gonna cast my vote on the sand ship. And and the 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 really the thing that it comes down to for me is as I think back on my inevitable playthrough of Master Mode on Skyward Sword, which full dungeon am I looking forward to replaying the most? I would have to say sand ship. Um Kaloktos is undoubtedly the better boss fight. The aesthetic of um, Ancient Cistern is better, but from a how much fun do I have playing through the dungeon standpoint, I have more fun with the sand ship than I do with the Ancient Cistern. And it's not by much, but it, it, it is enough for me to say that I would have to say that sand ship is the better one. Well, there you go. There, there you have it, guys. Uh, I am the dissenting opinion, but the official verdict on the Sacred Realms Zelda Retrospective podcast is that the Sandship is a better dungeon than the Ancient Cistern. And you know what? I ain't mad about it. I was about to say, I feel like we we have two really phenomenal options like there. It's hard yeah. to go wrong. I don't. I I I kind of disagree, but it's fine. Like yeah. I I get where I get where y'all are coming from, and it's totally valid. So good stuff. Good stuff. Okay, that does it for the Sacred Realms Rundown for this week. We will, of course, be back with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown next week. Chapter 8 of Skyward Sword, tackling the Fire Sanctuary, the last true dungeon in Skyward Sword. Of course, we have the Sky Keep later, but... I like the Sky Keep, personally. Yeah, the Liar Dungeon. The I like it. <laughs> I like it. I'm sorry. I do. I really uh, like Sky Keep. It's, it's fine, but like also I do feel— It's really memorable. It is. It is memorable. I feel like we could have we could have cut some filler and added another dungeon between Fire Sanctuary and that one, but that's—I mean, that's just me over here like just 
put more dungeons in it. It's great, right? That's that's what you need to do. I'm sure it's ju- it's just <laughs> that easy. Um, anywho, we'll be back to talk about that next week. We do not have any listener mail for this week, but uh, before we get out of here, I do just want to mention that if you are not on our Patreon. Uh, go check that out, especially if you enjoy Zelda art. The trading card collection has gotten kind of large at this point, and I'm pretty proud of them, and we're just getting into some cooler ones from here on out. The first Skyward Sword design has been revealed at this point, and it is uh, Skyloft. The second one, the one for October, I've already decided is going to be the Ancient Sister. Oh, of course it is. I, was, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> yeah. So I think that'll just be really fun to make a trading card out of. But And then I think uh, I looked at the episode schedule. I think we're going to have three months worth of trading cards. I mean, there there Skyward is more Sword. than enough um, art fodder uh, for Skyward Sword to have three trading cards. Yeah. If we had three Link's Awakening trading cards, we can definitely do three Skyward Yeah, I mean, Sword we've, got, we've got two episodes that are airing in November for skyward sword so can i I choose the theme on that one uh i'll definitely i'm open to conversation about it so the november trading card will be skyward sword themed as well but anyway get on that train if you haven't already because uh yeah i think it's i think it's pretty cool i would agree yeah all right Max, we really appreciate you coming on this episode, man. Obviously, there was a lot to get into here, and uh, I feel like we could have obviously like spun out onto another 30 to 45 minutes easily about just this section of the game, but we got to get out of here and <laughs> have a much more broad and overarching conversation about Skyward Sword versus Breath of the Wild, so we're going to go ahead and uh, get into the log-off portion here. Um uh, Max, I don't think – I mean you're not the kind of guy who usually plugs anything on this show. But if you do, go for it. This is your time. <laughs> if anyone's curious in game design thoughts and a lot of shit posts, you can find me on Twitter at Max Nichols. There you go. At Max Nichols. And I, I would encourage everybody to go check out Max's Twitter and go find the entire thread where he chronicles his thoughts on Skyward Sword as he plays through it because – uh, to be honest, there's a lot of really great observations in there. Um, Matt and I have kind of gone back to it several times throughout the recording of this season, and it's got an excellent perspective on this entire game. So can't recommend. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, I mean, we we truly mean it. So cannot recommend that enough. But either way, Max, thank you for being on this episode. As always, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yep. All righty. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, head over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five-star Apple podcast reviews are a great free way to support us, or five-star reviews on whatever podcast platform that you subscribe to that allows five-star reviews. That's kind of like not a consistent feature among all of them, but if it is, please do it. Uh, more reviews means that more people see our show that makes us very happy Hylians follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action Matt actually just posted a behind the scenes photo on our uh, Twitter during the recording of this episode I don't know if it was the most flattering picture of me 
in history. But Well, uh, I mean, that's why I take them. I mean, when you take pictures of me for behind the scenes stuff, they're not exactly flattering. But it certainly fulfills the promise of behind the scenes content. So go look at my double chin and you know, <laughs> <laughs> look on my double chin, ye mighty in despair. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, a little self-deprecating humor. I love that. I love it. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Skyward Sword Chapter 8, which covers a return to Elden Volcano and the Fire Sanctuary. As always, we would love for you to share your thoughts with us on our social channels. Those are at, uh, at Sacred Realms Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Skyward Sword can be played in its original form on the Wii and Wii U, or of course you can play the superior version on the Switch, which is Skyward Sword HD. In the meantime, may your hearts be full, may your arrows never miss, we'll catch you guys next week. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.